It's almost spring. And if you live in Philadelphia, that means it's market season. This is FDR Park. It's about as south as you can go in the city, across the street from where the Phillies and the Eagles play. Fastball, hit to left, it is long gone! The indisputable fact is that this is an extraordinary facility for what is undeniably the region's most passion-filled diversion, the Philadelphia Eagles. To live here is to know that South Philly is all concrete. So this park, it's a rare green oasis with acres of lush grass, a pond, and sports fields. And where, incidentally, you can also eat some of the best Southeast Asian food in the city. Lao, Cambodian, Thai, Vietnamese, it's all here. And a big cloud of barbecue smoke, papaya salad, and fry oil. This is also a place where, in a way, you can time travel through a history that the U.S. almost never talks about. The main military factor in staving off the collapse of what is left of Laos is a massive bombing campaign. It involves Navy and Air Force jets, including B-52s, as well as the U.S.-supported Royal Lao Air Force. America's war on Vietnam dragged the entire region into the fray. No one in Washington or Vientiane will say just how many bombs are being dropped or exactly where. A lot of stateside refugees can probably relate. We begin with the chaos in Afghanistan as U.S. troops head back into the country to secure Kabul's main airport after thousands flooded the airport in a desperate attempt to flee the Taliban. It's been 50 years since the U.S. dropped the last bomb on Southeast Asia, and its impacts are still an ever-present danger. If you didn't catch our episode on landmines this season, now is a good time to go back. But here's what we didn't get into before. The legacy of that violence here in our own communities. On this episode of Things That Go Boom, we ask how much can a weekend market and its long road to protection tell us about America's relationship with its refugees? I'm Lacey Healy. What if millions of Black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. For anybody who thinks that political ads are at their very worst they could possibly be right now, let me take you back in time. Three, two, one, zero. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live or to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. That's a real TV ad from the 1964 presidential race. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. It only aired once, right before 10 p.m. Eastern in September 1964, mirroring the vibes in Lyndon Johnson's White House a little too well. Mr. Bundy calling him on 9-0. Just a moment. Thank you. Quietly, the president worried that maybe, just maybe, 
America's war on communism in Vietnam was doomed from the start. We're getting into another Korea. It just worries the hell out of me. I don't see what we can ever hope to get out of there with once we're committed. A few weeks later, he'd greenlight the first air attacks on Laos, Vietnam's neutral neighbor. Communist forces there had shot down American planes doing reconnaissance along its northern border with Vietnam. Johnson's advisors told him, we need to send a message. This is quite confidential, but I want you to know it, and I want to get your advice on who else we ought to talk to, okay? Uh, This morning, 3 o'clock, our Air Force planes went into this battery that had knocked down our two planes that... uh, this anti-aircraft battery of uh, uh, 37-millimeter Russian uh, guns, an attempt to destroy it. They had about a 50% success. But even Johnson was willing to admit that there was no real plan, in Laos or even Vietnam. And it's just the biggest damn mess. It is. It's an awful mess. And we just got to think about... I look at this sergeant of mine this morning, got six little old kids over there, and he's getting out my things and bringing me in my night reading and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought about ordering Ordered those kids in there. there. And what in the hell am I ordering him out there for? One thing what that the is Vietnam worth to me. What is Laos worth to me? What is it worth to this country? It's easy to just say that once the bombs started dropping, that there was American intervention. But I feel like it even extends more than that because there was already activity in the area that's Alina Intali. She's chief of staff for Legacies of War. That's the group we actually also talked to in our episode about landmines. And Legacies of War has a tough job. Telling a story that America's leaders, and often even Lao people themselves, would rather not draw attention to. How 200,000 people from a neutral country fled to America to escape American bombs. Laos was known as the land of a million elephants, land of untouched beauty. And to some extent, even today, I think that's still true. Laos is home to over 50 different ethnic groups, and the Lao government has also identified uh, 160 subgroups. So there is a lot of different types of people living in Laos. And naturally, I think that There's just been a long history of differences that would become the Laos Civil War. The president's press conference from the New State Department Auditorium, March 23rd, 1961. I want to make a brief statement about Laos. America's role in Laos' conflict boiled down to the same post-war diplomatic soup reheated. What are we going to do about the communists? Kennedy was just the latest president to inherit this problem. Our special concern with the problem in Laos goes back to 1954. That year at Geneva, a large group of powers agreed to a settlement of the struggle for Indochina. Laos was one of the new states which had recently emerged from the French Union. And what are the shape of the sort of the two sides? Can you describe the two sides of the Civil War for me? We have the Royal Lao, which my family was actually very involved with. My grandpa actually served for the Royal Lao Airborne, which would be their air force. And then we have the Patate Lao, which was more towards, you know, the ideology of communism. The security of all Southeast Asia will be endangered if Laos loses its neutral independence. Its own safety runs with the safety of us all. In real neutrality, observed by all. I want to make it clear to the American people and to all the world 
that all we want in Laos is peace, not war. A truly neutral government, not a Cold War pawn. After Kennedy's assassination, all of that changed. On Lyndon Johnson's watch, American spy flights over Laos turned into years of bombing missions. The U.S. wanted to impede the traffic along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which runs along the border between Vietnam and Laos. The equivalent of a plane load of bombs was dropped every eight minutes, 24 hours a day, for nine years. From what my family has shared and the little that they've shared, because this, again, is is very traumatizing and still uh, it doesn't make sense <laughs> to even people who have lived through this. They described it sort of like uh, just constant rainfall, a very loud storm that never ended. Families were only fleeing the bombs. They were also fleeing the other side. Like even my dad was saying to get to Thailand, his family had to swim across the Mekong River. But, you know, the bombs weren't even the priority at that point when they were fleeing. He said that they were also fleeing the Pateet Lao who were shooting at them. But in 1975, I think that's when the largest amount of people started moving to like the first nations of like refuge, which include Thailand right across the border or places like the Philippines. My family actually didn't even get to leave the first point of refuge or the refugee camps until 1979. A lot of community members still tried to keep it very vague, but from what I know and, you know, even from the illustrations that we have, that we call the originals. And it depicts, one, refugee life and what that looked like, and then two, what were the bombings, what they look like to people who were in the refugee camps. And what we kind of gathered is that it was very difficult to live in those conditions. There was a lack of food. You know, even my dad, not sharing much with me (laughs) for most of my life, he said that, you know, they would they would get mice or they would eat insects and that was what you had to eat to survive. It was very difficult times, but I know that some stories that were more positive were that there was a sense of community that was really built in the refugee camps. I have a lot of uncles and aunts who are not really my uncles and aunts, but when they resettled in the U.S., it's because my family back in in Thailand, right? They formed this bond with people that they were in refugee camps with. And that's something that I've seen. It's a very common thing. Katsi Vilifan was born in one of these Thai camps. It's in Nong Khai, which is on the other side of Bien Chan, which is the capital of Laos. She can trace the general contours of her origin story. But when it comes to the hows or the whys of her family's journey, she draws a blank. You know, growing up, we often heard how great it was, how beautiful it was. Sometimes my parents would turn on the TV and there would be like a nature show or like something on like the History Channel or WHYY. And it wasn't necessarily about the war that they were involved in, but maybe it was like some mammal (laughs) in Southeast Asia. But then like, you know, them seeing the pictures of those like palm trees and the jungle, it's like it's so familiar to them. And they would sort of just like watch it just for that portion. Which raised all sorts of questions. There's a part of you that, you know, thinks it was so beautiful, it was great, like, why did you leave? 
But of course, it's not something you can come out directly asking. And I think with my own parents, they still haven't shared that particular story. The government opened up a fourth military base for Vietnam refugees at Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. And Robert Hager was there when the first of them arrived from the island of Guam. I grew up mostly in Philadelphia. It was, you know, easy for my parents because it, it felt good to know that there were other people here already and that the process to assimilate was the same and it's hard and you have to learn English and apply for food stamps and like you have to live in this house they give you first even though it's cramped and then you get, you're on your own. So I think for them, I think it was also helpful that other Southeast Asians were also here even if they didn't speak the language, we have similar needs. We have similar diets, so even if there wasn't a Lao grocery store, there was a Vietnamese grocery store, and like, you know, you can recognize the same thing. Those growing word-of-mouth networks, for many, that was the American support system. It's how families like Katsy's got on their feet. When our parents got here, there weren't many jobs that were available to them because of the limited language that they spoke. And so I think most of them just accepted factory and farm-type jobs because they were easy to learn. There also wasn't a lot of available childcare. And so for them, it made sense to bring us to work. And she so, remembers hot uh, summer days picking blueberries so just over the Delaware River in New Jersey. And the blueberries that were unripe, they're green, they're hard. They're almost, it's almost like eating like a tiny, tiny crab apple. And, you know, we would make the dips with like the chili and the salt. And um, and now we have a, I don't know if it's a condiment, but it's a, basically we take rice that we toast and then we crush it up. And so it gives things like a nutty, crunchy texture. And so we would add that too. Sometimes when we were just lazy, we would just take a can of shrimp paste and then just like scoop it and that was it, you know, because it provides salt. And it's these little meals shared here in these spaces that sparked the beginning of Philly's Southeast Asian food scene. Because we had started so early at like five, six in the morning and we were done at three, some people who were cooks saw that as an opportunity to like, well, you know, people are leaving and they might be hungry. Let's just set up a stand here and sell noodles and papaya salad and whatever. It was really nice to like, after working a really hot day, and then you come to the parking lot and there's like somebody who's already here and they have this like warm bowl of noodles and like everything's there and you just, all you have to do is sit and eat and enjoy and then you can like drive home. Over time, the blueberry field became kind of a hangout spot where Katsy remembers folks playing guitar, a game sort of like volleyball. People whose families didn't necessarily take them to the field to work, they knew about it. And they would say, is anybody going to, you know, Blueberry Field? Like, anybody? like it was almost like this, like, thing that you planned at 3 o'clock because you knew, like, that's when people were letting out. So, yeah, it just became, like, a thing on its own. And then there was FDR Park. The first time that I started going to FDR was about 1988, 89. We didn't call it FDR Park because we didn't know how to read the signs. We just called it Spectrum because it was next to the Spectrum, which is the sports arena next to it. I do remember early years where Taney Field is now, it wasn't a baseball field, it was just open field. And some of the Lao guys would have like leagues and play soccer. The first lady I know of, she was a Lao lady and she had like a dark blue turquoise van. And I remember her husband was grilling chicken wings stretched out on a skewer. And she was making papaya salad, but, like, she didn't really have a stand. Like, she was kind of just in her van. But whether this woman in the turquoise van was really the first, that's not fully settled lore. In a community where history is mostly kept by word of mouth, people remember things differently. I think just the idea that it was a place to go 
became popular for us. For the elders who were used to like being in a jungle and then they come to Philadelphia and there's like concrete everywhere and asphalt and there's this thing that falls from the sky called snow. It's like a shock. One van became multiple vendors setting up by the public barbecues, which didn't always sit well with people already living in South Philly when the government resettled families like Katzi's. A lot of times it just came down to sharing space. There's a lot of Southeast Asians in this one section and every Saturday there's nowhere to park because they're all here. And people who felt that the park belonged to them or that they were here first walking their dog or playing with their kids felt that they were entitled to the space and, you know, they would call the cops. So, of course, there was, like, tension. At first, the cops just ticketed vendors because they didn't have permits to sell food. Katsy says she's heard that over time, those tickets escalated into more. When it got to the point that the police were trashing their equipment or just destroying their food so that they couldn't even save it to like sell for another day or like whatever, then it got really personal. I think that for many of the vendors, this is possibly like the most money they've ever made or this is something they've always wanted to do is to open a restaurant, but it, you know, it's really hard to. And also at the same time, being from Laos, Cambodia, people don't know our food. We didn't really have Lao and Cambodian restaurants. We had Thai restaurants. From the outside, those spots made what Americans increasingly expected. Pad Thai, lo mein, yellow curry. But behind the kitchen door, there was a whole other culinary world with secret menus. If you hear people talking and you're like, I know you're loud, I know you know how to make this, because you're probably, you know, making it for your staff meal or, you know, if I request it, can I have it? But that's all started to change. Now, instead of hiding behind a secret menu, Philly's Southeast Asian cooks are showing what their food is really like. That's in a moment, here on Things That Go Boom. It's funny because I have grown up with it my whole life, and I've known about it, and then there's people who have just found out about it. And they're sort of just like, oh, this new thing. It's like, no, it's not new. I do think that it's great culturally that there are things that we get to own and say this is our food and this is how we make it, and that if you want to try it, you can try it on our terms. When Katsy said that word, terms, it stuck with us. Every vendor at the market has their own story, and not everybody is a refugee. But many share the experience of having their lives upended on somebody else's terms. And how often, surviving men either cooking to a stranger's tastes or hiding your food altogether. Even growing up with, like, having white friends, it's not like I said, oh, this is so good, you should try it, even if they came to my house. I definitely had moments where my parents made food and my friends were like, what's that? I'm like, you don't want it. <laughs> Because I was like, I don't feel like explaining this to you. That is an American story. But so is the one unfolding today. Where decades later, the FDR Park Market prides itself on showcasing Southeast Asian food in all of its complexity. So it's, it's an homage to um, our Philly cheesesteak and also the meat that we use, our chicken or steak, and it's marinated with lemongrass. That's the twist with the commodin. So you see it's on the skillet, and then when it's served, the cheese is at the bottom. And then with the meat, the topping, we have pickle here with carrots and um, papaya, with cilantro, and top it off with our chili shakers there. That's the Bai Food, a stall with Cambodian roots. And if you walk almost all the way to the end, there's Sai Jai Sabai Jit stand. Hi, here! 
yummy and healthy, honey. You need to try, okay? She's leaning over a wok, tossing and turning an order of pad thai. The noodles are a little charred, the sauce glossy. It's pretty much impossible to walk past without stopping to either admire her technique or smell the food. So what's in this dish? This is uh, what in here? Chicken, rice noodle, bean spaw, soybean, oyster sauce, sugar, back soy sauce, and light thin soy sauce, that's it. <laughs> Not much. Simple, like Thai people eat. Thai food, for me, is the same that Thai people eat. I, I don't change. I grew up in Thailand. I born in Chiang Mai. That's not of the Thailand. It's a beautiful country. Saijai remembers the first dish she ever made, sticky rice at nine years old, cooked over a charcoal flame. One time my mom sent me go to stay with her friend. Her friend cooked for a doctor in hospital for the food courts. That's how she learned the core flavors of classic Thai food, what she calls her original style. We different with spicy, sour. We use herbs in Thai food, you know, like lemon cut, cilantro, pepper, onion, everything is herb. She took culinary classes and even opened a little restaurant as a young adult. And then moved to Bangkok, the Chiang Mai, 10 hours from Bangkok, if you take the bus. But so different, but so beautiful. But when I'm what young, I'm really crazy. When she was off, she filled her nights dancing at raves. I take the bus 10 hours from Chiang Mai, go to Bangkok, go to discotheque in the morning. In the morning, 5 o'clock, come out of the, the discotheque, go to the bus station, take bus station, sleep all day. <laughs> and at 35, Saijai had finally saved up to visit America. I come in 2000 on October 13. I want to come to see how New York looks like. That's it. <laughs> I don't know, Philippe. I don't know. I want to see how America looks like. There's this picture of her posing in front of the Statue of Liberty. She's wearing a black Yankees beanie and a white puffer jacket. She looks like somebody on vacation, not a woman about to move across the world. After that, my, I call my mom. My mom said, hey, don't come back now. Over here, no good. The economy, business, everything go down. If you can't stay there, you stay there. But Saijai had one issue with America that she didn't see coming. The Thai food. The problem? Too sweet. Too sweet. See, when Saijai explains the sweet, salt, sour, and heat of Thai food, she says a good cook balances them perfectly. But American pad thai, it can be almost syrupy. And don't even get her started on all of the extra ingredients popping up in classic dishes. In America, they need everything. My friend, right, they have the restaurant on North Philly. For past eel, he put broccoli, he put carrot, onion. I say, you crazy? She thought, maybe I can help fix this. She brought it up to a friend who sold coconut sticky rice. I say, I make food too. Sometimes can I make my food and I give you percent, you know? But she'd heard the stories about vendors getting caught at FDR Park. Police being the trash, the trash truck, throw everything in there. Coconut, sticky, like everything, <laughs> chicken wing, <laughs> bloom. That's why I don't go. After that, I say, when, when they're going to legal, let me know. I want to go for sale, my stuff. And 2019, she said, hey, come, come. They're going to meeting this year. They say they're going to let the market legal. I say, okay, my time coming. <laughs> 
But then, well, it was 2019. In central China, a man has died following an outbreak of an unknown pneumonia-like virus. We have a new name for the coronavirus. The World Health Organization has officially called it COVID-19. But actually, Katzi says that COVID was kind of a turning point for the market. That would be credited to the Vendors Association, and that being like two vendors who decided, you know what, we can't just have vendors over here, over there, over here, over there, that, you know, we're going to be a market. No more hiding in the bushes. No more down-low parking lot sales. If we're going to sell together, we're going to sell together. Vendors worked out logistics with the city, like trash cleanup and where people would sell. Fast forward three years, and the FDR Southeast Asian market has a full-on social media presence. It draws crowds from across the area every weekend. I think that the opportunity for the vendors to also practice their customer service skills with people who don't speak the language is, is helpful especially if the people who are coming are friendlier and they're here to try things out as opposed to be disgusted and to, you know, protest their presence. The Philly market is like an embodiment of Southeast Asian festival culture. That's Alina again from Legacies of War. We usually had like festivals like that around like temples and, and uh, whenever there's like a big event in Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, you know, there's like tents and vendors and people just sell whatever they want to sell. Um, and here's where I'll reveal that Alina and Katzi, they're pretty close. That's actually how Alina first visited FDR Park. She was in town for their friend group's annual tradition, the Care Olympics. And it's a karaoke competition where we meet up with community members <laughs> and compete. Getting to see the market and what it is and what it represents, it really just, it like made my heart sing. I knew that that was something that we need to one, preserve at all costs and protect. Cause like just seeing beef on a skewer, fresh papaya salad, this is something that is, is hard to get by. Alina and Katzi met because much of the nationwide push to preserve and highlight Southeast Asian heritage, it's being led by a younger generation raised in America. They're opening restaurants, taking over family businesses, and embracing their own definition of true Southeast Asian food. The thing is, we are refugees, and we didn't choose where we got dropped off. Some of us went from, like, a very balmy, sunny, 70-degree weather jungle land to, like, Wisconsin. We're surrounded by these new foods, and we realize that we can't even grow some of our foods because the weather's not the same. And so we learned to make new foods. There is a specific river algae dish that obviously the river algae is available in Laos. They don't have it here in America. And so like the closest supplement is using spinach because spinach has that soft texture that the river algae has. Now the dish that we make here is very unique to us. I often like to think that a person who has like grown their own vegetables in their backyard on American soil and used it in their dishes, like that is very much a very Lao experience, just as much as somebody who has spent extra money to import herbs that were grown in Laos. You know, I just, I don't know. I just don't want to take away the foods we make here are any less Lao, that they're very unique to our experiences as refugees and should also be counted. After decades, Philly's biggest Southeast Asian market is securing a permanent location that's pegged to the city's planned $250 million makeover for FDR Park. 
including new sports fields, event spaces, and wetlands. Last year, the Greater Cambodian Association of Philadelphia received $100,000 from the city to design the market's home. But the park's renovation has been a source of major tension between supporters and critics who want its vast acres left alone. So community leaders are pushing to get the plans for the market set in stone. I'm celebrating it, but I also want you to understand that like it's, it's been a long time to get to the celebration and it's not just like people decided two years ago that they wanted to sell and like, oh, look at this opportunity that they, they were given. It wasn't easy by no means. There's some element of distrust because even though the market is what it is today, I think there's always this like 5% that a new mayor will be elected and he doesn't like us and he doesn't want any more market anymore. A city study found that the market attracts nearly 200,000 visitors per year to FDR Park. So like it or not, at this point, it's probably here to stay. Today, you'll find way more than food vendors at the market. There's actually backpack giveaways, voter registration drives, trick-or-treating at Halloween. And its website is loud and clear. Vendors are, quote, rewriting their history. FDR Park is no longer a place to hide, but a place of pride. Especially in 2021, having to experience a year of anti-Asian violence. It's not just like a market, right? And it's now like people recognizing that we, we are a community. And we deserve protection. If you claim to serve a community, do not count ours out. Because look at how many people we bring. In a divided America, where generations like Alina's and Katzi's are still trying to figure out how to reconcile their Lao history with their American citizenship, markets like the one at FDR Park are providing a lifeline to begin to connect the two. The Lao community, there is a lot of pride. And when we talk about suffering and we talk about hardships, it can come off as, like, a weakness. Even when we started Legacies of War in 2004, we were being too loud. The question that I heard from the elders and the older generation was, why are you bringing attention to us? And that was, to me, like, why not? We have suffered for so many years. What do you mean not bring attention? We are still having to walk that fine line of people who in our communities are still criticizing sort of the younger generation and our methods of being loud, like literally L-A-O-D, loud. (laughs) We're not hiding. And in the same way, is also inspiring our older generation to accept themselves and to come into terms. Now it's like, you know, it's sad to say, but a lot of our generation are nearing the end of their life. And one of the things that they're kind of realizing is that this is like a bonding moment too with younger community members. Like my mom, for example, she was so afraid to share her story, but once she saw how enthusiastic and like how passionate I am, she decided to record her own story. And she did a cooking class with me as well to share her background while also, you know, sharing how to make fish stomach soup. These spaces, like the Philly market, is empowering 
older people. We're kind of like giving that power to them to say like, here, you've been cooking this for the community for so many years, make money out of it. This is completely valuable. You're worth it. And one of the things that I kind of tell myself every day is that because I'm American and because I have the privileges of being an American, the privileges that I have, I have a responsibility, a moral obligation to educate people, to also advocate for my community who are still living, you know, amongst bombs in Laos. And I also know that there's an obligation to keeping the U.S. accountable. You know, Southeast Asian refugees, we resettled in heavily disinvested communities. Like we face systemic poverty, systemic racism, mental health issues. Those are, are still very relevant today. And it's in long term as a result of what we had to face as a war impacted community. And that is something that we don't want to see in the future. So we have to say, as Americans, we know that America and the U.S. can do better. Even today, we sort of see some of the same themes, some of the same parts of history kind of mirroring itself. And uh, that's why it's good for us to continue to ask those questions, to be in front of Congress and say, is this right? Things That Go Boom is distributed by Inkstick Media and PRX. This episode was produced by Christina Stella, with a little help from me, and edited by Katie Toth, Nikki Galtaland, and Sahar Khan. The music for our show is written by Darian Schulman, and Robin Wise makes each episode sound as balanced as a perfect bowl of pad thai. Thanks to the supporters and foundations that make our work possible, the Carnegie Corporation of New York and Plowshares Fund, as well as Inkstick supporters, including the Cologne Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Prospect Hill Foundation, and the Jubitz Family Foundation. This is it. This is our final episode of the season, you guys. But don't go anywhere, because we'll be back this summer for season eight. Until then, you can keep up with us over at inkstickmedia.com and on social at inkstickmedia. We hope to see you there. Just come to try. How about Sai Jai? Make the food for you. <laughs> I'm Ali Jiro.